You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast that celebrates youth, even though it's hosted by a middle-aged nerd. Conversion to English Standard episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. See what I did there with the whole metric thing? Because the song, of course. Okay, doesn't make any sense, but I said it anyway. This is a internet radio show dedicated to bring you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Two of my favorite Green Lanterns, and one of whom is going to be covered in part of the most awesome story that's ever featured the Guy Gardner character, the Yesterday Sin storyline written by Chuck Dixon. This week we're going to be getting into part two, where we see a little bit more of Guy's past. We see him oh, as a young 13-year-old boy trying to please his father. We also get uh, to meet his brother, who Guy looks up to, and unfortunately Guy is compared to. And we get a bit of overt drug usage. Yes, a certain character in the Guy Gardner issue basically puts forward a PSA for anti-drugs. Well, it's not really meant that way. It's part of the plot. And the way it's handled really does well with the development of the character. But it's just a weird kind of drug message. Especially with the type of drug that they're using and the sort of well, I guess the sort of DTs that the character seems to be going through due to the usage of the drug. But that doesn't diminish the power or the effectiveness of this book. It's a really good issue, and I can't wait to get to it. Especially because we're going to have to cover Green Lantern number 43 prior to getting to it. Which is a book that you might want to take a few drugs if you want to read it. Green Lantern deals with a character called Itty, which I guess is a character he met a long time ago in the Silver Age, I think maybe even in one of the Flash issues, that has come back to Earth with his weird plant wife, and they're going to have little plant babies. And there is some sort of Holy War Armada going on as well. It's a weird issue, but we have to cover it, and we're going to cover it as soon as we get done with playing these promos for some great podcasts. So, stick around.
James T. Kirk. Don't you read history? What did you say your name was? Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Which one of you is the captain? Do we violate the treaty, Captain? Red alert! All hands, battle station! What are you scratching at? Incorrect. Can you just get down to it, please? Prepare to attack. All hands battle station. No! Monthly Mondays, available the second Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. I guess you weren't so tough after all, were you? Now it's time to send you to the next dimension. 291 original episodes. This can't be, it's still going up! 325 monster chapters. You act innocent, but you're deadly. Time to die! Dozens of characters... Hundreds of enemies and a whole lot of violence. That kind of violence is pointless! You see, Super Saiyans tend to be a bit violent. Oh crap! Join hosts Donovan and Jesse as they cover the arrival of the Saiyans, the journey to Namek, the battle with Frieza, the mystery of the androids, and the terror of Majin Buu. The Next Dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. Join the fight at dbznextdimension.libson.com. See ya. And we're back. But before we get into the grandeur and wonder that is Greenlander number 43, let's go ahead and look at something fun. The Just One of the Guys email bag. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> But before we get to the real uh, emails that came in at just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com, I need to uh, say a little mea culpa again. I guess I do get iTunes uh, reviews. I get them from all over. Unfortunately, I've just been reading the American ones, and I just recently found out that you could change your iTunes to uh, whatever country that you wanted it to. And just looking around, I found out that I had a review from someone in the United Kingdom. Someone named Bub in the Shire. And uh, sadly, the review was dated January 26th of 2012. Almost a full year ago. So, all this message of me at the end of the podcast saying that send in an iTunes review and I'll read it on the air has been kind of for naught, because I've completely ignored Bub's review for almost a year. Bub, if you're listening, please accept my apologies, and if you're not, I completely understand, but 
if you're not, you're not hearing this anyway, but thank you for writing the review. I just didn't know how to get to other countries. So if you have written an email or have written a review in iTunes and you're from a country outside of the United States, uh, shoot an email to just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com and I will make sure that I read that review. But uh, Bub's review is pretty short and succinct and he gives me five stars and says, fun and informative, a great one for new Green Lantern fans. And again, Bob, thank you again for the review. Thank you for the five stars. And again, I apologize profusely for not reading this on the air. Uh, I just didn't know that you could actually read reviews from other countries just simply by doing this, clicking this little thing in the corner of the iTunes thing. So my bad. I really apologize for this. But we also have some emails, so we'll go ahead and get to those. The first one is from Mr. Jay Ferguson, and it's entitled Scantily Clad Conservative Pundits, which sounds interesting nonetheless. Uh, he starts out with just listening to the email section of episode 41, and so far as Michelle Malkin and a cat suit goes, ew. Monica Crowley and Ann Coulter, maybe not so bad, but still, not my cup of tea. And no problem, Jay. Uh, Everyone's entitled to their own sort of views of attractiveness. And to be honest, I just picked the, uh, well, basically the ones that, you know, I did a search for conservative uh, females. And these were some of the names that came up that, you know, weren't awful looking. Uh, He continues on, if you're interested in such things, rather more in the line of what you were discussing in the Olivia Reynolds issues, I'm sorry, Olivia Reynolds' issues, of prominent conservative women in chain mail or leather underwear, there is always the comic from Devil's Due that came out around Obama's first inauguration, Barack the Barbarian, starring our 44th president as a Conan-esque type character. It also features Ann Coulter as the Shrieking Enchantress and Sarah Palin as Red Sarah. (laughs) Wow. It's not very good. I never would have expected it to be anything other than that. And it is an incredibly thinly disguised liberal screed. And that's coming from someone whose politics are pinker than the Kadmatui. <laughs> Thank you for being honest and at least reviewing the comic for what it is. It, I saw the comic myself uh, when it came out and I was like, wow, this looks really ridiculous and is probably going to be very biased one way. But unfortunately I didn't pick it up so I Can't really say any more than that. Uh, Jay continues on. It does also have Dick Cheney as an incredibly creepy wizard in a robe that makes him look like the Emperor from Star Wars, which I think everyone, regardless of politics, can agree is pretty spot on. But if you want to find Palin and Coulter as barbarian princesses, look no further. But probably don't look, because it is unrelentingly terrible. (laughs) I can only imagine that it's... Not very good. But, unfortunately, when I think of Dick Cheney, all I can think about is the uh, Robot Chicken episode where they did Iron Cheney, which was basically Dick Cheney beating the crap out of Tony Stark, putting on the uh, Mark I armor, and basically yelling at all the, uh, well, I guess they were more, what, Afghanistani terrorists, to go f*** themselves. Jay continues, You've mentioned a couple of times puzzlement at the price of many Valiant comics in the ads of the comics, and I think I can explain it pretty easily. 
Valiant Comics certainly had some good stories, but they they consciously tapped into the speculator boom early on, creating bigger demand by doing limited print runs. And the early issues had huge prices on the secondary market, because because unlike many of the quote-unquote hot comics of the day, they were actually hard to find, especially as the buzz grew more and more as new issues continued to come out. Makes sense. Uh, The print ads did continue to get bigger as the company and its fan base did, eventually leading to the legendary long boxes full of Turok number one. The reason some of the early Valiant books haven't kept their value is because the demand was almost completely gone until Valiant recently returned this year. That completely makes sense, and I guess that's uh, that's clever marketing on the uh, on the executives of Valiant to uh, tap into the, as you may have mentioned, the zeitgeist of the times, and try and get in on the speculator market. Limiting runs and having good stories probably allowed for the comics to uh, go for a higher prices on the back market, but is that really making the company any money? Uh, I'm certain it's making speculators money, and it's making uh, comic book retailers money, but after the uh, comic book companies, Valiant, have already sold the comic initially, the resale value isn't going to really affect the company that much, or unless they're just keeping numbers of it and then letting go of those comics, those extra comics they have, and selling them for those prices. I don't know. It's it's all supply and demand economics that I was never really that interested in in high school or college anyway. Going back to Jay's letter, he says, Yay! Another letter that has almost nothing to do with the content of the show. <laughs> that seems to be sort of the sort of the way things these letters tend to go. Um, another tangent, Diabolic was pretty much the template for Phantom X of X-Men fame. Love me some Phantom X. Uh, it, uh, this is a character I really have no uh, no real knowledge of. Um, I dropped out of the X-Book, so about the time that Jim Lee came on. In fact, I think I dropped most of the X-Books right after Magneto pulled all the... Uh, Admantium out of Wolverine's skeleton, and it was revealed that Wolverine actually had bone claws. Yes, the bone claws Wolverine was the bridge too far for me. I know. Uh, Jay continues, but anyway, great show as always. I love how you keep plugging along weekly. Since I last mailed in, they have beginning. Uh, they have the beginning of the GL series up to issue eight, and continuing after Guerrilla Warfare with a prologue in part one of the third Law story, and they're filling out lots of other runs, including Suicide Squad and even the '80s Doom Patrol series, that started with Copperberg and Lightly, and eventually became the Morrison and later Rachel Pollock Vertigo series. Yeah, Comicsology is starting to ramp up their digital form or their digital comics, so I'm thinking this will probably be the well, obviously, this is going to be the way of the future. iPad readers and Comixology is probably where you're going to be able to find a lot of these back issues that you may not be able to find in traded uh, collections. So check out Comixology, and if you have a tablet of any sort, this is probably the way to go. So it looks good for lannery goodness, if not gardenery goodness, sadly. Keep up the good work. And I really loved your appearance on the most recent episode of Green Lantern's Light, and their lovely dynamic was improved even more by your presence. Well, 
Thank you very much, Jay. I I was very happy to be on Green Lantern's Light, and those guys are a really fun group. Um, actually, uh, here in a couple of weeks, you might be hearing from a uh, member of Green Lantern's Light over on this show. We're, we're trying to work something out. Uh, he finishes up and says, I'm really curious to know what Jeffrey said under those beeps, though. Um... It's probably not something I should mention on a semi-family-friendly show. Let's just say it was a, uh, in relationship to a perverse sexual act that involves um, violence against women. I'll email you with the actual thing that he said, but uh, suffice it to say, it's not something that you should probably be talking about uh, in front of kids or people with weak constitutions or people with, like, any morals or anything like that. But thanks again, Jay, for writing in. I always appreciate it. Our next letter comes in from our Canadian listener, Scott Davis. And Scott writes in, Hey, Sean, I just finished your episode number 10. I was glad to read issue... Oh, sorry, I was able to read issues 4 through 10 this week, and they are great. I'm really enjoying the issues and listening to your podcast. It's nice to read something that isn't so dark as the current Green Lantern series. Well, as I'm not reading the current Green Lantern series, I can't comment on how dark it is, but if it's following up anything that happened in the Blackest Night series after that, I'm certain it's probably a lot darker than what we're covering here. I'm trying to remember some of the notes I had for the issues, but I don't have them in front of me. In parentheses, he says, I work a lot of hours and have a three-month-old son at home, so time is precious. So, I definitely know how you're doing. Don't worry, it's going to get better. Eventually, the kid will get a regular sleep schedule. You'll get some sleep. Otherwise, you'll learn to enjoy coffee quite a bit. Uh, But Scott continues on and says, Here are the notes I remember. Issue 4. Awesome cover with a giant hole where Evergreen City used to be. I love it. But what's with Hal not having enough time to recharge his ring? I know, I'm sure it only takes a few seconds to charge the ring, and he has to leave ASAP. I also found it very out of character when Hal turned off the radio when he heard that the town was missing. Plus an awesome splash page of Hal Jordan leaving Faroa. Yeah, I remember that it was kind of out of character for Hal, who was in the uh, field with wonderful hippie character Clay picking uh, oranges or fruit or whatever that uh, he heard that a town was missing on the radio and just decided to turn it off rather than actually do something about it. Just kind of out of character for how. Scott continues on, issue 5, and he says that his cover was cut off at the right two. Must be like that for all the issues, but a great issue. And yeah, I did notice that on the left-hand side, or at the right-hand side, it looked like the cover had been cut off, so even in the images that I've checked out on the internet, uh, the image was cut off there, too, so it must have just been a printing error with all the issues. Kind of weird. Goes, uh, continue on, he goes number six, awesome issue. I'll agree with the air. Issue seven, the killing of the Zudarians by the Shugs at the wall was absolutely brutal. Strange that they didn't mention anything later, like burying bodies or anything. Yeah, this again hails back to the idea that these episodes or these issues at the time could actually do brutal things but not have to do it in a gory or violent manner. Um, I think Thomas DJ explained it 
uh, very well and very succinctly when he said, you know, comics of this time period that I'm covering right now are mature, and comics of the time period that are going currently, or the new DC, the, the new DC 52, are adult. And it's adult on the idea of what a 13-year-old considers to be adult. You know, it's a bunch of blood, it's a bunch of evisceration, it's a bunch of uh, women in scantily clad clothing. It's not mature. And I think that's what differentiates the comics from the current day to the comics I'm covering. Scott continues on. Rose with the shotgun was awesome. It actually reminded me of Linda Hamilton and T2. I found it out of character when Hal was free, but wasting time talking with the Shugs as they were getting ready to kill Rose and Toby. Get moving, Hal. I, I agree with your uh, statement of uh, Rose reminding you of uh, uh, Terminator 2 Linda Hamilton. The only thing is the, that Linda Hamilton and Terminator 2 came out about a year after this comic. So I don't know whether it was uh, prescience on the DC people knowing about Terminator 2, or that they were just drawing more from maybe Sigourney Weaver from Alien. I mean, I got the whole sort of mother taking care of the young child uh, vibe there, but it it was definitely a sort of uh, Linda Hamilton look with her uh, sort of very earthy type clothes that Linda Hamilton wore as well in Terminator 2. Issue 8, awesome, plus the last page, I'm Green Lantern and I'm back. Yep, Pat Broderick is a great Green Lantern artist, and this final splash page should have been on posters for anyone who loved Green Lantern during this time period. Really good splash page. Going back, issue 9, is Nort for real? I'm blown away by this character. We'd never see him in the Jeff Johns era. Let's see where this goes. Again, yes. Nort was pretty much, well, relegated to nothingness uh, when Jeff Johns came around. Uh, I don't even know if Nort is actually a member of the Green Lantern Corps or has even been touched upon. Uh, The last I saw Nort was in an issue of uh, Justice League America Classified which was the uh, Keith Giffen, and I think, I'm not certain if J.M. DeMatteis was doing it as well, but I know it was Keith Giffen doing it. Uh, Not formally known as the Justice League, but I can't believe it's not the Justice League, which had, you know, the uh, basically Giffen DeMatteis Justice League with Guy along with the Yellow Ring uh, going to an alternate dimension, essentially Hell, uh, recovering ice, losing ice in one of the uh, saddest moments I think has ever happened in comics and then going to an alternate dimension where the Marvels were all evil, Mary Marvel and Captain Marvel, I guess you call him Shazam now, and Nort was a giant menacing sort of daikaiju dog. It was a ridiculously fun storyline that was had really great art by Kevin McGuire and just a great story about uh, Guy and B um, Fire having to uh, try and bring Ice back from the underworld. Uh, really one of the most touching moments, I think, in comic books history. And uh, finishing up the email, uh, Scott says, Issue 10, okay, Nord's not a real queen then. That makes sense. I must admit the comedy between Guy and Nord is excellent. Nord is growing on me. 
I'm a little bummed that Pat Broderick only lasted eight issues, but Joe Staten's art looks like he's the real deal. Just out of curiosity, are you covering the Mosaics as the series? No, I'm not going to be covering Mosaic. Uh, a podcast I think called uh, the Green Lantern Corps, maybe? Hold on. No, actually doing some searching. It's the Lantern Cast podcast. They actually covered the uh, Green Lantern Mosaic issues. So if you're wanting to get information about the Mosaic storyline, definitely check out the Lantern Cast podcast. Uh, Scott finishes up. I'm uh, Gerard Jones is an excellent writer, much better than a few of the current guys. How do you feel about Tony Bedard, Peter Tomasi, Jeff Johns, and Pete Milligan? Does Gerard Jones beat them all or what? Well, I've read Bedard, Tomasi, and Johns. I have, don't think I've read much of Pete Milligan, but all of them I jo- enjoy. I give credit to Jeff Johns for coming up with a very interesting idea in the uh, multicolored lantern story, especially uh, the yellow lanterns. thought that was really good, but the, the whole rainbow lantern thing just, I think, went on a bit too long. It was a good idea in theory, but it's... It just spiraled out of control, in my opinion. Uh, Peter Tomasi, I think, has done the best work with Guy Gardner since Gerard Jones has. He's really gotten the character spot on, and I think uh, his run in Green Lantern Corps, uh, prior to the New 52 reboot, with uh, Kyle and Guy as sort of buddy cops, was the perfect melding of the two characters. Uh, Tomasi did a great job with it, and... I've heard he's doing a great job with the new 52 stuff. I just haven't been reading that. And finishing up, Scott says, I must admit that I'm having a great time reading and listening to your podcast. Thanks for doing this, and let me know if you ever need anything from Vancouver. Scott. Well, I've heard you've got a really great stock of uh, maple syrup up there. So if you ever tap into the maple syrup reserves, please send me down a bottle of maple syrup. I I could really use one. Sorry, that that's a horrible, horrible stereotype, Scott. Don't send me maple syrup and don't send me hate mails for for this. I love it. I, I love the fact that people, again, from other countries are writing in. And, Scott, uh, that you continue to write in, even though that I joke about Canada, is awesome. Thank you again for writing in, and thank you for listening. <sighs> But now it's time to get to the unfortunate task of reviewing Green Lantern number 43. Green Lantern number 43 was cover dated July 1993 with a release date of May 11, 1993. The cover price was $1.25 US, $1.60 Canada, and 70 pence UK. The title this time was Perilous Nativity. Plot and, uh, the plot was by Gerard Jones and Steve Matson. The script was by Steve Matson. Pencils this time were Claude St. Aubin and M.T. Bright. Inkers were Dave Cockrum, John Lowe, and Carlos Garzon. Letterer was Albert Guzman. Colors with Anthony Tolan. Assistant editor was Eddie Braganza, and editor was Kevin Dooley. With the cover by Bright and Tangal, with an asterisk mark behind that. Deep in Space, Green Lantern Larvox of Spuda essentially tells an armada of spaceships to get the hell off my lawn. Ignoring the demands of the slug-like GL, the attack force turns its interest towards a different quarry and warps out of the sector, leaving a puzzled Larvox hoping that there is a lantern ready to defend the sector that they're heading to. Not so surprisingly enough, the sector is defended by a Green Lantern, 
one Hal Jordan, who's busy recharging his reign with his brand spanking new Ultra PC Oath. Hearing the change, Tom... Hi, face. Kalmaku steps in and wonders why Hal feels the need to make his superheroic oath supposedly less racially offensive, while he can still call his Eskimo friend Pieface. Hal asks Tom if it bugs him, and he says he knows it's not the words, but the feelings behind them. Tom wants to talk about Hal's feelings, and Hal hints that his odd actions are due to... the Ergono. Great. Saying they'd like some time alone... Hal asks Tom to leave as a group of aliens from the Armada created a portable hole in the wall of Hal's room and make off with Hal's lantern. Meanwhile, Carol Ferris is interviewing for a job at Ferris Aircraft. Think she'd be a shoe-in. The meeting with April, Clay Kendall, and Jake Ramirez is going well until Carol overhears Jake taking a call from the Crosswind Corporation. Getting all freaked out, Carol cuts the interview short and leaves saying that she'll think about the job. Back at the airfield, Hal is looking for an excuse to ditch spending time with Aresia, and as luck would have it, that excuse arrives in the form of the giant walking plant spore thingy, Itty, who brought along his wife, another giant walking plant spore thingy, with boobies. And she's pregnant. Itty asks Hal to play midwife as he goes out into space to face down the alien armada from before. Covering Itty's wife with green energy, Hal asks what he can do to help. Itty's wife, who I shall now refer to as Biddy, enters Hal's mind and tells him of the holy war that was waged on her race by the LaRue. And exposition taken care of, Biddy has her flower babies, as the aliens who are now recognized as the LaRue attack. Hal fights them off, but they threaten him with the destruction of his power battery. Hal grabs it with a ring construct fist, and an alien tug-of-war breaks out, with the end result being a destroyed power battery. Saying that the expanding energy will kill her babies, Biddy asks Hal to save them, and Hal absorbs the emerald energy and becomes Super Sentai Ultra Spectra Green Lantern! <sighs> Realizing that he can't handle this power level that does over 9,000! Hal blasts off into space to shoot out his load of energy. Luckily, the LaRue Armada is there to take it on. And a little intergalactic fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all races are, breaks out as Hal does his best to save Eddie and disable the Armada. Meanwhile, in the B-plot, Tom Kalmaku is driving along, chatting on his cell phone, trying to get some more information on the mysterious Crosswind Corporation. Getting nowhere, he stops by the Montoya Bay Hospital to check on Ann Coulter wannabe Olivia Reynolds, who's busy checking out of said hospital. Olivia gives Tom the cold shoulder and heads out, leaving Tom to have a discussion with Dr. Bentley, Olivia's doctor and the one person who shared a trip to Quard with Green Lantern. Back in space, Jill and Eddie are mopping up the Armada when the last ship breaks free and blows up Super Gamma Green Ranger Lantern Sword Hal. Using the last bit of his will, Hal summons Voltron and destroys the LaRue, saving Eddie and Biddy and their flower children. Crisis averted, the giant spore thingies reward Hal by making him take care of the baby Ares, promising him that they will be back to check up them, check up on them in about 4,000 years. And with that, Hal heads off into space to build a vivarium for the plant thingies as they swarm around him, gently tickling him. The end.
Okay, notes. What. The. F Aside from the ongoing storyline of Tom Kalmaku and Carol Ferris working together slash against each other to try and figure out what the Crosswind Corporation is, this story is completely out of the blue. Plus, it takes a character that really hasn't been seen or dealt with, Itty, this giant protoplasmic plant spore thing from the Silver Age, and puts him smack dab back in the middle of a book, and in a storyline that really has no bearing on anything going on in Green Lantern. It's just a weird story all over, and I don't know why it's in here. It may just be one of those sort of, what do you call them, placeholder, archived, uh, one of those stories that they throw in whenever they don't have an official release or the artist or the writer is behind on the schedule and they have to throw in some story just to get an issue out. It's not very good. Plus the artwork by Claude Sadaman, who's a decent artist, just isn't up to the standards of uh, Empty Bright. At this, uh, the amount of inkers, it looks like the uh, comic's been inked by a committee, and you get a really uneven issue, not only story-wise, but art-wise as well, which is kind of disappointing. But let's go further into the notes. Uh, we'll start, of course, with the cover, which is uh, an interesting cover of Super Saiyan Hal blowing up some spaceships really good. It's a nice, dynamic cover, and if you look in the uh, center of the uh, Hal Jordan, which is crushing alien ships in his hand, you can see that the Hal Jordan on the uh, cover really isn't Hal. It's Hal's energy being, with Hal being in the middle of the... Uh, Green Lantern symbol. So it, it makes sense that Hal is big enough to be able to crush an entire spaceship. However, uh, there is a bit of a problem. In the uh, book, the uh, credits say that Bright and Tangal are the uh, people who do the cover. And unfortunately, that's not true. It's even signed on the cover saying it was St. Aubin and Tangal doing the cover. And you can tell the artwork isn't bright. It's It's got that feel of uh, Claude St. Almond. So, kind of a mistake, and I'm certain it wasn't anything intentional, but just a little editing mistake that they made there. Page 1, panel 2. Uh, it looks like even this far in, uh, there's a coloring mistake with the uh, LaRue, which look conspicuously like scroll. They've got the uh, sort of green alien head with the big pointy Vulcan-type ears and the V-vest and everything, so it's very scroll-looking and not really an original design for the characters. And the name LaRue, it sounds what like it sounds like what Richard Nixon would be saying on Futurama. Page 2, panel 1, and here's the thing that's bugged me for a long time in the Green Lantern series, and I remembered it happening, I just didn't remember it was happening in this issue. Hal Jordan decides to make a subtle but slight change to his oath, and I'll go ahead and read it and see if you can catch it. He says, In brightest day, in darkest night, no evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power, Green Lantern's light. Now, if you didn't notice, it was the second line where he changed in blackest night to in darkest night. It's a subtle change, and it 
really doesn't mean anything, but it seems that it's been changed because Hal feels that saying blackest is in some way racially insensitive. And even Tom Kalmaku, the friend of Hal Jordan for the longest time, who's Inuit, or if you want to say Eskimo at the time, uh, is still being called by him as pieface, which is considered to be a kind of derogatory term. And it smacks of a silly double standard. And it smacks of silliness all around. The entire idea of the oath, and I know that there are multiple oaths, I mean, uh, Salak in the uh, Len Wein and Steve Englehart run, well, I guess in the Steve Englehart run, would use the original Green Lantern oath when he was saying it. And then other lanterns would adopt their own oaths, so it's not really a big deal that the oath is changed by certain people or certain members of the Corps. However, I think it's kind of silly for Hal to change the uh, word blackest in the oath simply because it seems politically correct, when really it has nothing to do with feelings of disdain or trying to diminish people of color, trying to diminish black people. It's silly, and unfortunately, I don't like it. They address it in here, and it's nice that it's Tom addressing why he made the change, but it's still a silly change, and I I just can't get over it, even now, almost 20 years after it. But moving along in the story, page 3, panel 5. Really, Hal? Just leave your battery out for anyone at all to see or touch or grab via an interdimensional portal that the aliens use to reach through the wall of your building. Nice going. Plus, for no reason whatsoever, there's a random Green Lantern symbol right here between panels 4 and 5, and it just looks weird. It's not there for any particular reason. It looks like maybe the panels just didn't fit, and in order to fill in the white space in the issue, they just decided to put a Green Lantern symbol there. So, kind of odd. Maybe another sign that this issue was kind of rushed. Page 4, as Carol's being interviewed for her job at Ferris Aircraft, thinks she'd be a shoe-in with the last name of Ferris, we get more of Carol being freaked out by the mysterious corporation. (laughs) Carol, I I wouldn't worry. It's not like Ferris is being bought out by LexCorp or anything, so you're fine. Then on page 5, panel 4, I can hear the tower at the airport going, Excuse me, hey, giant alien plant spore thingies, uh, could you get off our runway? We're trying to land some planes here. Over. Yeah, uh, the best place to appear, you know, when you're wanting to meet with your fellow Green Lantern friend from the Silver Age, if you're a giant alien space spore thingy, is right in the middle of a active uh, airfield. Way to go. Page 7, panel 5, in a weird sort of, I don't know, portrayal of the aliens, they seem to be ridiculous jihadists against the alien plant babies. I mean, they're saying that their war against the plant babies is a holy war decreed by the glory of their true god. (sighs) I guess they're trying to make connotations to radical Islam and how those people are just completely bat-guano insane. It's not a good comparison, though. 
skipping ahead a little to pages 12 and 13, we get a nice two-page splash of uh, Super Saiyan Green Lantern out in uh, space along with uh, Eddy, and they're being attacked by the Armada of spaceships. And it's a nice panel. You also get some uh, kind of graphic death. Uh, you can see some of the spaceships blown up and some of the uh, LaRue floating dead in space. One of the things that kind of bugs me, however, is all the alien ships look different. Now, this is an armada of ships, supposedly from one race of beings, and you would think if it was from one race of beings, they'd all have a similar design of their ships. But maybe it's just a way to let the artists cut loose and design a bunch of weird, freaky alien ships. I'm, I'm not disappointed with that, and some of the designs are actually kind of cool. Page 14, panel 3. Here's another thing that I don't get. Uh, Super Saiyan Hal is saying that it's agony to release the energy with the precision I need just to disable these ships. Okay, Green Lantern, this alien armada is coming to Earth to try and kill your giant friend and destroy his wife along with all their babies. And your idea as the protector of Earth is to defend against these aliens by disabling them. You're an intergalactic space cop. I think you're authorized to use lethal force if the necessity arrives, and the destruction of possibly the planet, and definitely your friend, would probably grant you that ability. So, just saying. Then on page 16, panel 1, Tom is so busy talking on his cell phone, which is obviously an awesome car phone, because it's even got the... uh, coily cord connecting it to the car, so that's awesome, 90s technology. But he's so distracted by driving and talking on his cell phone that he obviously missed the uh, kid in the next car over pleading for help as he's being kidnapped. Yeah, if if you've got the comic and take a look at that image, that kid is, uh, he's been uh, kidnapped by someone and there's some stranger danger going on. If only Tom wouldn't have been gabbing on the phone, he could have saved a child's life right there. Then on the same page, panel 4, we see Ann Coulter rushing off. I mean, she must have something important to do. Uh, maybe she's going off to kick Bill Maher in the taint. Oh, wait, I'm I'm sorry, that's Olivia Reynolds still. I, I keep mixing them up. Then on page 18, panel 1, okay, the uh, weird scroll-like alien LaRue actually are different color. I guess there's green LaRue and blue LaRue. So there you go. And then finally on page 21, panel 4, Hey, Green Lantern, thanks for saving us and our multitude of plant babies. As a reward, we're going to piss off for 4,000 years and you can take care of them. Is that okay? All right, great, thanks, bye. (sighs) Thankfully, however, I don't think we're ever going to hear from Itty, Bitty, or the multitude of little alien life forms ever again. At least not to my knowledge, but who knows? Jeff Johns may bring them back in some recent episode of Green Lantern. You never know. But that does it for notes for Green Lantern. Let's go ahead and take a little break here. I'm going to throw in some promos. And when we get back, we'll go ahead and start our coverage of Guy Gardner number 12. In the decade of the 1970s and 80s, not even the great city of Metropolis could be spared the ravages of an energy crisis, 
super criminal attacks, or disco. The job of protecting the city fell to Superman, whose battle for truth, justice, and the American way made him a symbol of hope for the city of Metropolis. Charlie Niemeyer in association with the Superman Podcast Network presents Superman in the Bronze Age Superman in the Bronze Age is a bi-weekly podcast highlighting the Bronze Age adventures of the Man of Steel in various comic titles. Follow along at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com The Hulk on Podcasts Hulk like podcasts. Hulk listen to podcasts while Hulk smash. The Hulk on Peter David Hulk like to read Peter David comics. Hulk have problem making words. Hulk, write down. Peter David wrote a seminal run on the Incredible Hulk for 12 years. Some of the most provocative, compelling stories came from this era, filled with striking psychological overtones, bold character developments, and sharp humor. Along with artists like Todd McFarlane, Dale Keown, and Gary Frank, Peter David took the Incredible Hulk and the comic book medium as a whole to new heights. The Hulk on Peter David Podcasts. Uh, Hulk not find Peter David Podcasts. Hulk get mad. Hulk smash! Hey folks, in order to appease the rampaging Hulk, there is an Incredible Hulk podcast devoted to Peter David. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, looks at the entire Peter David run on the Hulk, issue by issue in a bi-weekly format. Join me, J. David Weeder, on a journey through the saga of old J. Jaws at www.incrediblehulksmash.com. Incredible Hulk and all related characters copyright Marvel Comics. Pat Smash is not responsible for gamma radiation sickness, smashed MP3 players, overturned vehicles, tanks thrown through the ceiling, injured supervillains on the lawn, gamma bomb detonations, property damage from debris, deep-rooted psychological damages as a result of intense child abuse resulting in an alternate self-destructive personality with the strength of an atom bomb, or anal leakage. And we're back. I'm ready to dive right into Guy Gardner number 12, which was cover dated September 1993 with a release date on August 3rd, 1993. The cover price was $1.25 US, $1.60 Canada, and 70p UK. 70p? Why, yes, there was another increase in price so for our UK listeners. So, sorry, UK listeners, inflation and whatnot. The title was Dream a Deadly Dream, part two of the Yesterday Sin storyline. Writer was Chuck Dixon, penciler Joe Staten, inker Terry Beatty, and letterer Albert Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Baganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Guy Gardner is messing some superheroes up. Guy's taking out Batman, The Flash, Blue Beetle, Alan Scott, and Aquaman without even breaking a sweat. Hawkman flies in to try and stop Guy, but he fares no better than his teammates. 
Even the ever-awesome Green Lantern Hal Jordan is no match for Guy's might. And the woman would be dying to get a bit of Guy love, including his former girlfriend, Ice. It's here where Guy realizes that an evil doppelganger pretending to be Guy on Earth might not be such a good thing after all. Still held prisoner with the captured Green Lanterns, Guy speculates what his double would be doing. Or better yet, who his double would be doing. Frustrated, Guy asks why they are keeping him around if their duplicates are already in place. The Lanterns would have a definitive answer, but they believe it's just in case something unexpected happens. Just then, the expected happens as the Drawl come in to take Guy away for another brain slug session. Guy doesn't go quietly, however, but the Drawl eventually get him on the exam table and let the brain slug do his thing. Cut to the streets of Baltimore, where a 13-year-old Guy and his father Raleigh are practicing catching the old pigskin. Guy misses the catch and Raleigh rebukes his son, calling him a pansy. But before Guy could get more of the brunt of his father's anger, prodigal son Mace walks up and wants to have a chat with Raleigh, who is eager to oblige. Inside, Mace tells his dad that against all of his wishes, he's decided not to go to college, but instead entered the police academy. Thinking that his beatified brother has finally screwed up, Guy is crestfallen to hear that his dad wholeheartedly supports Mace's decision. <sighs> Trying even harder to win his father's attention, Guy turns his efforts to science, working late at school on an engineering project. Coming home after school, Guy walks upstairs and is greeted by an unusual smell coming from his brother's room. Walk again, he sees an ashtray and rolling papers, and knows exactly what's going on. From a darkened corner, a shirtless, strung-out mace calls out to his brother, begging for him not to tell his father. Taking pity on his wild-eyed older sibling, Guy promises not to tell, even against his best judgment. Time passes, and Guy finishes his shortwave radio, getting an A-plus on the project. Wanting to show his father, Guy rushes home, only to find out that his dad has been laid off from his work for drinking on the job. Angry at the whole world, Raleigh swats at Guy, causing him to drop the project that he had worked so hard on. For a brief moment, there is a glimmer of remorse in Raleigh Gardner's eyes, but that is soon taken over by his pent-up rage. Fists fly as Guy can do nothing more than curl up into a ball and let his father's anger burn itself out. Back in the cell, Guy wakes up and strikes up a conversation with Graf. The two discuss the nature of the brain slug, called a Xanaglaf, and that it's a mindless creature that just transfers data from one organic to another. Guy wonders who the data would be useful to, and Graf realizes that Guy is formatting a plan of escape. Unfortunately, a big part of that plan is using RRU-92 to break open the energy barrier holding them captive, and the hulking mechanoid is reluctant to do that, say the least. Guy tries to do some fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leland, 2011, all rights reserved, amount of convincing, but only manages to have Vaz rip the robot's head off and have Guy hauled away for another probing session. However, this time Guy knows that the Xanaglyph is a mindless creature, and he has some plans to mess with the memories that it absorbs. Cut to Guy at age 16, running from the police in a stolen 63 Caddy convertible. Realizing that he'll never live up to the persona of his brother, Guy decided to do a 180 and become a complete hoodlum. Taking the car on a jump over the stereotypical rising drawbridge, Guy turns to see the image of... Guy, 
sitting in his front seat. Puzzled by the appearance of his future self, Guy, the younger guy, gets told that there's a lot that the two need to talk about. Okay, do you folks really want to hear me gush some more about the issue? Of course you don't. So let's just go ahead and head on to the notes. We'll start with the cover, which again is a great cover. Uh, we've got the left about one-eighth of the cover with a, a green stripe, and then you've got the image of Guy in his original Green Lantern uniform, which is the stereotypical one that Hal Jordan or John Stewart would wear, the uh, black costume with white gloves and everything. It's pretty much the standard GL uniform that he was given in his early adventures back in Green Lantern. But the other seven-eighths of the cover is awesome, as it is Guy in his very 60s Elvis pompadour haircut, looking back at the police car chasing him, chasing him as he decides to do the stereotypical bridge jump. It's right out of Smokey and the Bandit or Hooper or any of those myriad Hal Needham films from the 1970s. Page one, we get an awesome opening splash page of Guy backhanding Wally West Flash into uh, into the sky and then taking out Batman with one punch. Yeah, you can obviously tell that this is an angrier, uh, more violent guy and as we get to see here in a few pages, this is actually Guy's sort of deep-seated fantasy. Pages 2 and 3, we get another great uh, two-page... Well, it's broken up with a couple of panels, but a nice two-page splash of Guy standing triumphant over all his enemies that have wronged him. Uh, Aquaman, Blue Beetle, Batman, uh, the Alan Scott Green Lantern, and, of course, the Flash. But, of course, into... Uh, Take down Guy Gardner is the ever awesome Hawkman. However, he's in a really weird uniform. It's a, I'm guessing it's a very 90s thing. It's a black uniform with, of course, a leg holster, and uh, he's got Wolverine claws on his left hand, and I guess you call it a katar. Is that what you call it? A punching blade on his right hand, and. His wings also, they don't look like these stereotypical Hawkman wings, which would be kind of organic. They look more like they'd be the nth metal ones of the Golden Age, uh, which Hawkman had to strap onto his back. So, Luke, if you're out there, give me an idea of what's going on with Hawkman here. Page 4, panel 4, we get a nice shot of Guy and Ice kissing and I've got to say, Joe Staten draws ice with some junk in the trunk. It's it's a good image. Uh, every once in a while, Joe Staten does the female form correctly, and this time around, he's got ice right. She's looking fine. Page 6, panel 3. Guy relates to the lanterns that the draw keeping him there is kind of akin to him keeping his monkeys albums while he was dating uh, Ice, which confuses me in a couple of ways. Primarily, why would Guy be listening to the monkeys? But stranger things have happened. Moving on to page 8, panel 1. Again, Staten draws a wonderful, youthful guy. 
it's not just a half size image or uh, half size image of the actual character. It is a young character. There's definite differences in the facial structure. There's definite dis- differences in the way his body is. I can't again more love for Staten here in this issue. Plus, here on the same page, we get our first look at uh, Mace, Guy's older brother, and. Of course, Mace, along with Guy, is a redhead, except his hair is a bit more curly. Um, oddly enough, he kind of looks like me as a youth, with the kind of uh, outrageous afro, except I didn't have sort of orangish-red hair. Plus, uh, Mace is obviously well-favored over Guy. As in the images here, you see Raleigh just taking a shine to Mace and saying, come on, we'll go get you beer. We'll go get you a beer. So not only is Raleigh allowing Mace to drink underage, but he's completely ignoring Guy and flicking his cigarette at Guy as he goes off to talk with Mace. Nice. Page 9, panels 5 and 6. After uh, Mace tells Raleigh that he's not going to college, which Raleigh expected him to do, and he's joining the police academy, and Guy thought Raleigh would be completely irate at this going on. Guy realizes that after Raleigh has accepted Mace's ex- explanation of going to the police academy, that he can't win. And his dialogue here is great. Uh, it says, This is where I found out that Mace just can't lose. I just don't know yet that I just can't win. And it's a, another bit of character development for Guy in that he has always been not only the underdog in what we've seen prior to this, in the Green Lantern issues, and in the uh, Justice League International issues, everyone looks at him as the second stringer or the underdog, but it comes initially from his parents as well, especially his father. So, more shading in of his character that I'm really enjoying. Pages 10 and 11, here comes the kind of the dramatic portion of the book. It's really well done. Unfortunately, it's kind of sidetracked by the idea that the drug that Mace is using is obviously marijuana. Now, I'm not saying marijuana is a good or bad thing. That's not what I'm here to judge. But I am saying that it's not the most powerful and the most addictive drug that could be used to show that Mace is, you know, basically an addict. Uh, if it were a heroin needle, if it were something like that, I think it would have a bit more emphasis, a bit more strength in the in the story. But that's neither here nor there. The images on the page are just incredible. It's all done in a sort of darkened hue with a lot of blues and purples and blacks. In fact, most of the background is black and the uh, colors are brought forth in the sort of blue and purple feel. It gives a really nice nighttime type feel and there's just wonderful panels here. In fact, on page 12, the third panel, the uh, image of Mace looking at Guy, he's just completely wide-eyed and sweating and he's sitting alone in his room with his shirt off and his pants and he knows that he has something to lose if his dad finds out that he's using drugs. It's a powerful scene, and the fact that Guy is taking up for his brother, even knowing that he could basically get his brother in so much trouble if he told his dad, 
again, it's another shading in of Guy's character that is a testament to his, well, his character, to uh, how he deals with um, his family members and how he deals with people that he cares about. Great shading in of character and really good artwork, again, from Staten here. Page 13, again, we've got the uh, sort of nine-panel stereotypical Ditko page that's really used effectively here. We get a bunch of vignettes of Guy bringing home the uh, electronics project, I guess the uh, radio transmitter that he worked on, or the shortwave transmitter that he worked on in school and got an A on to try and impress his dad. And in the first panel, we get Raleigh swinging at uh, Guy and Guy dropping it. The next panel, we get for just a moment Raleigh coming to his senses and realizing that he's being a complete ass and that there might be some compassion inside there for Guy. Of course, the next panel is Raleigh just tapping into the rage again and slapping Guy, and from there on out, it is just images of brutality. Now, again, this being a 90s comic and this being not a modern comic, the images of brutality are just hinted at. You see Guy balled up with a tear running down his face. You see Raleigh with his hand in front of his face, and his face is colored completely in a sort of reddish pink, a a color of anger. You see in the next panel a Guy balled up again and fists being flying. Plus you get uh, in the fourth panel of this page, uh, as they're coming downstairs or coming into the living room, basically, you see Guy's mother sitting there again, drinking tea or coffee, watching television, completely ignoring what's going on. She is just basically putting out of her mind the fact that her husband is brutally beating her child. It's a very dysfunctional family, and I can't believe I'm using the word dysfunctional, but it's, it's a family that's in chaos, and it's really impressive that the character of Guy Gardner was able to come up through this kind of upbringing to become a hero. And it, again, it is more and more shading in of why the character is this way. Chuck Dixon and Joe Staten, amazing job here. Moving on to page 14, panel 4, we see that Guy's winning over the lanterns here. In talking with Graf, he realizes that Vaz, the big Wookiee-type Green Lantern, is really taking a shine to him, and even Vaz is really realizing that he's a Green Lantern. Uh, let me read you what Vaz says. He says, I think that you're a warrior. I respect that. I also think that there's a reason for your obstinance. You're not merely a brawler. You have a plan of escape. Finally, someone in the Green Lantern Corps is realizing that Guy is not just a brain-dead brawler, that he actually can use his brain, and he actually sometimes is more than just what you see on the surface. Then on page 18, panel 4, oh, poor Gepak. Now, he's the sort of gelatinous slime thing that uh, is a Green Lantern. He can't talk and doesn't talk throughout the issue, but as the other Green Lanterns are tussling around to try and figure out how that they can escape from this prison, RRU-29, I guess, uh, slips and basically squishes Gepak. 
thankfully he's a gelatinous, you know, protoplasmic slime mold thing, so he'll be back together. But at the time, Vaz rips off the robot's head, which just goes to show that you should always let the Wookiee win, because Wookiees are known for ripping people's heads off. Skipping ahead to page 20, panel 4. Well, if you thought Guy's bowl cut was really bad, you should take a look at Guy's pompadour haircut. Or pompadour? I don't know how to pronounce it. It's the big Elvis, puffy, 1950s-slash-60s Fonzarelli cut. It's pretty ridiculous. And finally, on page 21, panel 4, I can hear the police officer going, Curse you, Duke boys! As a guy decides to jump the bridge, uh, which just happens to be you know, somewhere near Baltimore. I guess, you know, there'd be drawbridges around there. I'm not really certain, but it's it's kind of a stereotype of those times. But that ends notes for the issue. Again, I'm loving it. There's more goodness to come from Dixon and Staten, and I can't wait to get to the next one. But let's go ahead and take a look at some of the ads that they have in this book. We'll see what they've got to sell to us. The inside front cover has a bunch of people shouting up the air, and the uh, slogan says, Prepare yourself for Mortal Monday. September 13th, I guess 1993, was the debut of Mortal Kombat for all the game systems, including the Super NES, Genesis, Game Gear, and Game Boy. Mortal Kombat was a big port to these uh, systems, and I think was one of the huge selling games for both the Super NES and the uh, Genesis. I remember playing it on the Genesis and having a heck of a good time with it. And also, I believe, I'm not certain if it was specific to the Genesis, I think you could do it on the uh, NES as well, but if you entered a cheat code, or basically a certain code with the keys or whatever, you could get it to where you could actually do the fatalities and have blood in the uh, in the Genesis version of the game. Not so certain about the Super NES one, but uh, I think you could do it as well. But Mortal Kombat was a fun game and a, a really good port from the arcade. A few pages in, we get Spreek and Find for Spree, which is basically a crossword puzzle. Well, not really a crossword puzzle, but a word search where you try and find as many of the words spree in there as you can. Then it commands you to go out and buy spree. Uh, if you don't know, spree are basically sort of chalky fruit candy covered with uh, a sort of uh, fruity coating, hard coating. Uh, they're kind of like sweet tarts. Um, they're interesting candies. Probably very sugar-filled and probably going to put you into insulin shock if you have too many of them. Next page is the uh, typical Mile High Comics page, and it's got, I think we've covered this before, because it's got uh, $1 books of uh, She-Hulk, X-Men, Batman the Riddler, and Mephisto and the Fantastic Four. So I know we've covered this before. They're selling comics. A few more pages in, we get the same uh, Make a Day for Six Flags, uh, celebrating the Warner Looney Tunes characters at the Six Flags Parks near you. The next page is uh, the Hot Comics by American Comics and Entertainment, and it's the same stuff. Uh, this time, instead of promoting the uh, death and return of Superman, the big issue right now is Nightfall. Although they're still uh, promoting the Superman books in the top uh, one-third of the ad, 
they've got uh, the $1, the $2, dollar $3 comics, and the hot comics, which I think we've all covered before. Then on the next page, we get Batman vs. Bane, the ultimate blowout. One will emerge to rule the night, Gotham City will never be the same, and neither will the Batman. It's Nightfall, the special double-sized issue of Batman 500, with uh, worked on by Man Shaparo, Austin, and Manley. And I'm not certain, I can't remember if this is a Kelly Jones cover. I'm thinking it is because the anatomy of Bane is just ridiculous. The entire side underneath his, uh, underneath his pectoral muscle is just a bunch of little blotches of muscle and fiber and everything. And of course, you've got Asbats and his gold and silver ar- uh, gold and silver armor with the ridiculous spiky claws of death. So, nightfall is here, and you've got yourself one badass Batman. We'll see how that turns out. The next page has some awesome John Bogdanov, John Bogdanov art with uh, steel, and it looks like Superman in a black suit with a silver S on his uh, chest running towards the uh, viewers, or I guess towards the camera, saying the reign of the Superman is upon us. Superman, the Man of Seal, number 26. Again, from Crisis to Crisis, covered this a few months ago. Great, great bunch of books. Definitely go listen to From Crisis to Crisis. But as a complete 180 to uh, the awesomeness that was Superman, the Man of Steel, number 26, we get Adventures of Superman, annual number 5, Bloodlines, Earth Plague, which has the uh, Bloodlines aliens taking on Super, don't call me Superboy, Boy, along with, I guess, some new hero, some ice, electric, livewire type character. Don't know who it is, don't care, it's Bloodlines. The DC Universe page has Are You a Guy's Guy uh, questionnaire, where it basically gives you five questions that uh, are multiple choice, and if you're reading the uh, Guy Gardner Year One story, The Yesterday's Sins, like we are right now, you'd probably be able to pretty much answer everything that's on this questionnaire. They also give a How to Draw Robin, which is says essentially the same thing. Draw a circle, draw the guidelines in for the eyes, nose, and mouth, and then let someone else draw it, because Grummet and Hazelwood, or, going, or not Grummet and Hazelwood, Grummet and Hannah, are going to do a better job than you possibly will. Neat. The Guy Talk has uh, the stereotypical stuff of praising Guy, and a lot of people uh, kind of ridicule a guy. In fact, one person, Bernie Girix, uh saying that he's kind of peeved at Guy for saying in, I think, number seven, that or issue number seven, that while Superman's body went missing for a while, I used his Kryptonian corpse for a super paperweight. <clears throat> Obviously, probably not the most tactful thing that Guy has said, but uh, Bernie basically took Guy to task, and said that he hopes he never figures out why his power ring quits on him. Too bad. He's figured it out. The uh, back inside cover has a Try These Tongue Twisters talking about Tangy Taffy's tantalizing taste today. It's an advertisement for Tangy Taffy, which I guess is Laffy Taffy, done by the people who do Twizzlers. So, there you go. But the back outside cover is for a book that I'm certain that if you were a fan of Superman, you probably had it this time. He's the greatest superhero the world has ever known. Finally, the complete story can be told. 
The Death and Life of Superman, The Man of Steel, The Monster, The Death, The Four Superman, The Return, The Whole Story. A novel by Roger Stern, which was on sale in hardcover August 25th of 1993, wherever books were sold. Plus, it has a little blurb on the bottom for Superman Doomsday and Beyond by Louise Simonson, the uh, young adult novel. So, if you were a Superman fan at the time, this was the book to have. And I think um, Jeffrey and Michael over at From Crisis to Crisis said that this was a really good adaptation. It left some things out, uh, basically the Justice League stuff, and I think they had a mention of Guy Gardner in there. But it was a very good coverage of the entire Death and Return of Superman story. And it did it uh, pretty well, from what I recall. Uh, Definitely a must-read. But again, that brings us to the end of another episode of Just One of the Guys. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank everyone for writing in. I appreciate all of you doing that. And I hope you come back next week, because we're going to be getting into uh, a bit of an interesting era with Green Lantern. There's going to be a major crossover between three of the uh, space cop storylines in uh, the DC Universe. Both the Green Lanterns, the Dark Stars, who we've met before, and Legion, who's led by uh, Brainiac's son, Vril Docks, and also uh, sports characters Lobo and Captain Comet as members of the team. It's the uh, DC Universe story Trinity, and it covers eight books altogether, and we're going to be covering the Green Lantern books in detail, and also just kind of skimming across the uh, other books, the Dark Star, the Trinity book, and the uh, Legion book. But we've also got more Guy Gardner Yesterday's Sins coming up, and I can't wait to get to that. So I hope you guys come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys. And until then, have a good weekend, and we'll catch you later. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at just one of the guys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, and be sure to leave a review there. If it's in America, I'll try and read it on the next show. If not... Send me an email, and I'll read it then. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me on Facebook, because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern.
the opening music for today's show was Metric with their song Youth Without Youth off the album Synthetica. As usual, I would love it if you would go to Amazon.com to purchase this album, purchase this song, or download the MP3. And if you go to Amazon.com, make sure you do through the Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.libson.com. At the top of the page, there's a banner for Amazon.com. Just click on that, and you'll be transported to the most magical site on the Internet. Well, the most magical site on the Internet, not hosted by Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. 